You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Yankee, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are glad to have you on and excited to talk about today's topic. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No, we've been um, looking forward to this talk, and um, you know, this is a, a I, th- I think it's a high yield uh, topic. You know, I'm actually on pediatrics right now, and they're doing a bunch of uh, different types of TTOs and uh, and operation. At least the sports guys are for uh, patellar instability. So, uh, you know, yeah. again, thanks so much for coming and uh, and talking on the podcast today. Sure, well, I appreciate it, and I'm definitely passionate about a sesamoid bone, which is weird, but it is what it is. <laughs> Okay, yeah, you know, and like Cody was saying, or Dr. Cole, whatever you like to call himself on air, <laughs> uh, I was just on a pediatrics rotation as well. And yeah, you see a lot of patella instability issues coming into clinics. So really excited about this one and looking forward to learning something, even myself. Um, so we're, we always start off the show and just ask some, some questions about you, or, or at least about our guests. And uh, my first question for you, Dr. Yankee, is, why did you go into sports, uh, sports orthopedics? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think there's multiple facets. Um, you know, I, I knew obviously that I wanted to do surgery in general. And I saw how sports involved arthroscopic and open surgery. And I really liked the arthroscopy a lot. And the fact that you could still operate on many different body parts and have some variety. Uh, I really liked that combination with the overall biologic component. So the fact that we're dealing with living tissues that we're trying to repair that may or may not always heal. And that gives us a lot of opportunities for uh, biological improvement and tissue regeneration. And so I've done some work with cartilage restoration and um, I found that really intriguing. And um, Dr. Brian Cole was one of my mentors in training and I'm sure he planted that seed early on. And then Finally, the, the patient population is, is obviously great. You're dealing with young, healthy individuals that are trying to do the things that they love. And it's great when you can get people back to that. So I think it was a combination of, of those factors. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's great. And I hope people are listening in and, uh, you know, there may be the, the next sports guy out here um, that may want to do sports. And it's funny you mentioned uh, Dr. Brian Cole. I swear every time I, I do research, I see his name on an article and I kept wondering, like, I was like, who is this guy? Um, but I realized he's a well-published person uh, and physician. Uh, so our, our, our second question is, is there anything that you wish that you would have known or wish you'd have done at the beginning of residency? Now, you know, given that you're an attending physician now, is there any advice that you'd give to yourself? Um, I think I was lucky to have some great mentors that I would just say they gave me some advice that I, I trusted them and listened to, and I thought they were crucial. And I would just want to continue to pass that on, which is, um, I think we all like our jobs a lot. And I think we are all feel privileged to offer the care that we offer. Um, but I think it's important to be balanced and have other interests in life and make sure that you take time for your friends and your family while also still being laser focused on your career. So um, that whole idea of when people ask you about what's your 10 year plan when you're in college or applying to med school, it's hard, you know what the right answer is for the interview, but it's hard to know what you truly believe in. And 
you know, the further along you get, you'll realize that time flies by pretty quickly and you want to really be looking ahead and say, this is the person I'm trying to emulate. This is what I'm trying to become. You know, what am I doing today to try to end up there? I like that. I think it's really important to, you know, have a plan and just kind of keep pushing to get there and making sure you're taking the right steps. And uh, even out, out, have something outside of, uh, especially with what we do outside of your main, what we do on a day-to-day basis, just kind of keep yourself sane, but still pushing towards the ultimate goal of becoming a, a excellent surgeon at which, whichever field you choose to go into. Um, and, you know, we, me, myself, and, and, and Dr. Cole and I, we're, we're both still residents, but from your end, I wanted to ask you, how is it, or how do you like training residents uh, at your institution? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, the residency and the fellowship is, is really awesome. When you, when you start operating yourself and have your own practice and you have your own clinical team, it's very easy to want to just get into a routine where you just get things done in a very efficient manner and things are very smooth, but, but it does become a little bit monotonous. And, you know, the days that I have residents or fellows, um, it's rewarding because they're curious, you know, they're asking questions, this stuff's new to them. And, and it's fun to see somebody go through that learning process and, and understand what it's like. And then to challenge you too, you know, you have to, again, my mentors were always very open to me asking them questions and challenging them on things. And I never had somebody make me feel like I was bringing up something that didn't make sense or that was a dumb question. And um, I think it's easy to forget that. And so it's it's just great to see everybody um, with how curious they are. And they, and they make us think. They ask us questions that can seem obvious and be like, you know what, nobody's ever even looked that up. Or, you know, people may have thought it, but nobody's put evidence behind it. So why don't we, why don't we do a project and try to answer it? So it really keeps it interesting. Yeah, and even from the resident standpoint, sometimes if you have a more junior resident in yourself or even medical students asking certain questions, it make, like you say, it just makes you think about it in a different way. Uh, and I, I think overall it helps you even learn the, the subject even more. So I bet that is very, uh, very rewarding from the attending standpoint. Um, so I think we're probably good to get in, go ahead and get into the case. And I, I'm going to pick a case that's pretty – uh, pretty common. I feel like I got this a lot back when I was on my uh, pediatrics rotation. So say you have a 16-year-old female who comes into your office complaining of anterior knee pain for the last uh, six weeks or so, and she's been noticing that she's been having more feelings of her knee giving out during while she's playing soccer. Uh, and she comes in today for evaluation. So where do you start with your history and physical on trying to work up this patient? Yeah, so, um, you know, you brought up two things immediately in that history that I would focus in on to try to clarify uh, what their definition of the pain is and the instability. And so some people come in saying their kneecap feels unstable, but they may not have actually had a full dislocation event. And so it's very important to understand if they've, somebody's told them that they have patellar maltracking uh, or if they truly have had frank dislocations. You also want to understand then, do they have pain baseline just when they're sitting, going up and down stairs, or doing lower level activities that are unassociated with instability? Or do they just have the sensation of shifting that then results in pain? And when they don't have these events, they have pain-free intervals. To me, those are two very different animals. And I worry about someone with underlying chondral disease 
if they have pain at rest without those episodes. And if it's just related to instability, then certainly it's, it's not as big of a concern. Something else in the history that can be important is do you have swelling? So if you have visible swelling and so you ask the, pa the patient, it's not just do you feel the tightness in the knee, which can be lower level swelling, but do you see your knee ever get large? And that's a really important point too, because usually something is getting damaged if you're having fluid in the joint, because it's either a serous effusion or it's a sanguineous effusion. So it's either blood or inflammatory fluid. And if it's blood, then it could be something that they've knocked off a piece of cartilage and bone or torn ligament. So I think that's where I would start uh, with those patients when they come in. And, and the patients that, that come in are, are for people listening that, you know, you, you hear a little bit about maltracking and you hear about different terms as far as subluxation or chronic, you know, dislocations. What kind of, just as a baseline, what's kind of the difference between the, just the general terms of, you know, what maltracking may be versus what an actual frank dislocation versus subluxation may be? Yeah, so the, the easiest place to start is probably just frank dislocation. So if somebody has an acute uh, traumatic dislocation, that's when their kneecap uh, translates or dislocates uh, laterally unless they have iatrogenic medial instability, which is rare. So it's typically a lateral patellar instability event um, that is either high energy and contact related or can be low energy and non-contact related. And then uh, we can get into the treatment of that, but essentially that would be the acute traumatic dislocator, which is also commonly a first-time dislocator. Then you can have habitual dislocators, or some people call a chronic uh, dislocator, which is somebody that uh, basically stays out laterally. So these are patients with high-grade dysplasia. They can also have issues related to bony alignment that uh, causes their patellar tract far laterally. And then you start to have some gray areas of people that are uh, subluxators. So they're people that have had true traumatic dislocation events. Uh, and then they feel the sensation of the joint starting to come out, but it, the patella never fully comes out, just subluxes. And they can modify their activity to stop that event from becoming another full dislocation. And then I would say patellofemoral maltracking is a term that probably gets overused a little bit, just like patellofemoral chondromalacia. Sometimes that can end up being a little bit of a wastebasket diagnosis. Um, but basically, if you see people that have anterior knee pain that's non-structural in nature, they've never had a true dislocation before, they don't get swelling, and you see that they have some other osseous abnormalities like miserable malalignment where they have femoral aniversion, tibial torsion, and you know that there's a large lateral force vector on that patella, then that's somebody that probably does have true patellar maltracking that's causing pain. Okay. And so on our, on our patient that, that, that's in our office now, what is the, I guess, how, what is the physical exam maneuvers or uh, what, how do you go about your physical exam when you're trying to work these patients up as well? Sure. So um, are we starting with just a, a maltracker with pain or is this someone that has true traumatic dislocations? I think it'll, I think we should start with someone who uh, just has pain is unsure if they ever had an actual traumatic uh, full location, a uh, dislocation. Yeah. So yeah, you obviously want to do the regular parts of the exam as far as the uh, checking to see if they have an effusion, check their range of motion, but one of the biggest parts for these patients is actually the dynamic exam. And so I have them do a single leg squat 
uh, as one, one of the first things I do, assuming they don't have an effusion. And I look to see, do they have uh, Trendelenburg sign where they have a hip drop from weak abductors? Do they have internal rotation and valgus uh, at the knee? That's also a sign of weak abductors. And if those things are out of whack, then you already know this patient's dynamically putting an increased lateral force vector on the patella. So we talk about the Q angle, which is a clinical measurement from the ASIS to the patella to the tibial tubercle. And you can dramatically increase the Q angle by doing a bad single leg squat. And when people are doing two-legged squats, they look good. But a lot of times if you're cutting or pivoting, you're, you're on a single leg. And so usually you'll accentuate those findings. Um, so that's a huge part of that exam. The rest of the exam is really less important and it has more to do with ruling out other pathologies. So we'll, we'll check patellar translation and make sure they don't seem like they have any chance of true instability events. We'll look at the overall tracking and J sign. We'll check their hip rotation while they're uh, supine and prone to check internal external rotation, check tibial torsion with the knee flexed at 90 degrees and the foot or the ankle rather in neutral. And, uh, and just check the other ligamentous exam just to make sure that those aren't an issue. But most of these patients with patellofemoral pain uh, have a very benign exam. And one final component is I do use patellofemoral grind quite a bit uh, just to see if they have crepitus there or if that reproduces their pain. Usually that should be a very smooth exam where you push the patella down into the femur and then distalize it to have it engage in the trochlea. And a lot of times you can, the patient will make a face, but you just ask them, does that feel weird or does it hurt? And a lot of times they'll say it just feels weird or awkward, which is, which is a normal exam. And, and what is that, that J sign? Can you kind of describe what, what that is? And, and it, you know, I guess, how, what would you see? Yeah. So the, uh, the, probably the easiest way to see the J sign is if you just have the patient sitting at the table uh, with their legs bent over the sides, so like they're sitting in a chair almost. And then you have them activate their quad to extend their leg from 90 degrees into full extension. And depending on the patient's body habit, sometimes it can be hard to watch, but you're watching to see the patella as it goes from being engaged in the trochlea to disengaging the trochlea, how far laterally the patella moves. And if they have a soft J sign, then you'll see it just glide over uh, one to two quadrants of lateral translation as they come into full extension. And What's really important or is more abnormal is if they have an aggressive or abrupt or jumping J sign, where as they go from full extension, the patella is sitting slightly lateral, they start to flex, it stays relatively lateral, and all of a sudden it hops over and makes a pretty aggressive move, and then gets into the groove into later flexion. Uh, typically that happens around 30 degrees of flexion, and so what I always tell the residents are, if, that, if that's not happening, happening at the appropriate degree of flexion, then usually that's related to patella alta, and the patella is just sitting too high and it doesn't engage until later. And then if they have that aggressive jumping J sign, then usually that's from one or potentially even two things, which would be significant trochlear dysplasia or a very lateralized tibial tubercle. Okay. Now, now, what if you have the patient that has you know that traumatic dislocating event you know that you see on on TV, you know, when they, the soccer players, they have, for example, those like uh, patellar dislocations. What is the uh, physical exam like for those type of patients? And like, what are, what are differences? Yeah. So for these patients, uh, if they come to you acutely, obviously you're a little bit more limited in what you can accomplish in the office. But the, probably the main thing is I even see fellows get tripped up with this sometimes. 
you want to make sure that you really do a good exam on patellar translation and ACL and allotment on these patients uh, because you can easily get fooled. Patients can literally say the words, I saw my kneecap pop out to the side and pop back into place and they actually tore their ACL. So it's kind of unbelievable that someone can, I mean, two people I can think of have come into the office saying that and uh, you're obviously going to get an MRI and verify it, but the, the main thing acutely is just to see, do they have a large effusion? What is their story? And in those patients, to be honest with you, I'm going pretty much straight to an MRI. The reason you want to MRI somebody that has a traumatic effusion is not only to confirm the diagnosis and make sure that you're not missing something like an ACL tear instead of patellar instability, but the rate of missing an osteochondral fragment that they've knocked off is rel relatively high on x-ray. And so you'll find those pretty much every time sitting in the notch or sometimes in the lateral better uh, from a traumatic dislocation with a large effusion. If the patient comes in and they're beyond that acute phase, so let's say you see them initially, you potentially treat them non-operatively, get the swelling down, put them in a brace, do some therapy, whatever your treatment du jour is in your office for this. And you see them back now and they're, it's more of a cold exam. They, they're a couple of weeks out from the event. In these patients, you, you want to check the effusion, check the range of motion, but then really look at that J sign again. So you want to, that's an important one for them. And then you start to do patellar uh, translation and tilt examination. So I perform these with the knee in full extension and I keep one hand uh, where the patella was sitting for a frame of reference. Then I use my other hand to translate the patella laterally. And I look at how many quadrants of lateral translation I can perform. And then I look to see if the patient's apprehensive. And I also ask them, does this make you nervous when I go in this direction? Does it feel like the sensations you get when you feel like your kneecap's about to slip out of place? And then that should usually be one or two quadrants of lateral translation with a firm endpoint. If somebody has two quadrants with a soft endpoint or three or four quadrants, then that's more likely to be pathologic. And you certainly want to compare it to the other side. I do the same thing for medial translation. Uh, medial instability, uh, is almost always iatrogenic from a prior large lateral release. And so it's not always uh, clinically that relevant unless somebody has had prior surgery and a history related to that. Similarly, I don't use patellar tilt uh, too often other than if somebody did have a prior lateral release, you can usually see that you can lift that up pretty significantly. Uh, it's not part of this conversation, but patellar tilt does help if somebody has a tight lateral retinaculum and you're going to perform a lateral lengthening, then if they don't have tilt, then that would push you potentially in that direction. Some patients don't have true instability and full extension. You have to actually start to engage them in their trochlea at 30 degrees and then trilateral translation. And sometimes those patients would actually be even more apprehensive because they're used to being in the constraints of the trochlea. And when you laterally translate there, that goes away. Um, and then one last global thing that, to look at is I do perform a bait and score on uh, all of my patients that have patellar instability, just to get an idea of what their baseline uh, ligamentous laxity is. And then the rotational examination we talked about for the femur and for the tibia. Yeah, I think that was excellent. I think you, we spoke about um, the patella uh, specific exams. This is the patellar tilt test, the patellar translation or the glide test and using the number of quadrants that the patella translates and, you know, over two or over three, you know, is, is, is positive for a pathology. You also 
touched on the patella apprehension test, you know, if they have those same feelings of um, subluxation or instability, or, you know, you look at their face and if they're, they're, they're wincing in pain. And then also the, you know, the exams uh, looking at uh, the bony, uh, the bony anatomy for, you know, femoral anaversion or external um, tibial torsion. Um, I think, yeah, I think that was a great uh, explanation for the physical exam findings uh, for things that you should be looking for in these patients. Uh, now, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, and I was just gonna say, Dr. Yankee, he he actually already mentioned some of the imaging, uh, but before we, well, pretty much he you saying that you would consider MRI a little bit earlier with some of the known traumatic dislocators when it when they come into office. But before we get too far into it, uh, with imaging probably being one of the next things we want to tackle in office, but uh, I was hoping that we could go over some of the anatomy just because with the knee you know, understanding some of the basic mechanics and the functional anatomy of the knees just kind of helps understanding the, the pathology and how to treat it. So could you go over some of the important anatomy that you have to keep in mind when uh, treating this type of injury? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And um, a, lo a lot of what we think about are the soft tissue restraints uh, that help hold the patella in place or the static stabilizers. There's all the dynamic stabilizers that we talked about when it comes to the single leg squat and physical therapy. And when it comes to the anatomy, there's the bony aspects and then also the, the ligaments. And so uh, it's important to just understand the different types of patella that you can have with regards to patellar dysplasia. And so the Weiberg classification is probably the most commonly used for this. And essentially that's uh, an equal lateral medial facet predominant lateral facet or all lateral facet. And so those are, there's uh, several different grades and it, it goes up to three or four, depending on the one that you look up. But those would be the general classifications for the patella. Uh, the trochlea uh, gets a lot more complicated and trochlear dysplasia, I think is something that you probably don't understand until you see a whole lot of it and really try to focus on looking at x-rays and, and understanding that classification, the de jure classification uh, based on a perfect lateral x-ray is certainly still uh, what we talk about the most. Uh, but most of us do find it pretty difficult, and most studies have shown it to have poor interrelator reliability. Uh, but I think it's still good to understand, and from a functional standpoint, you basically want to know, is the entrance of the groove concave, flat, or convex? And so that's an initial component. And then if it is flat or convex, how far anterior is it to the anterior cortex of the femur? And that's what gives you that supertrochlear spur or the bump that we talk about, uh, which can make it jump when it comes into the entrance. So that's kind of a simplified uh, way to look at it, but I think it's helpful to kind of uh, dumb it down, so to speak, because uh, the classification can be difficult. So um, the NPFL is the primary restraint to lateral translation of the patella. And there's other medial-sided uh, ligaments that attach the tibia and to the meniscus. But I'd say functionally, those are less relevant and, and less likely to be injured with the uh, associated trauma. The one that I think is, we'll get into the NPFL a little bit more, but the other one that's an important secondary restraint to lateral translation is actually the lateral retinaculum. And so I think the reason this is important to bring up is that there's still some teaching that a lateral release can be a beneficial treatment for lateral patellar instability. And 
I've heard this described and I think it really resonates with me that the patella is being pulled into the trochlear groove like a horse, like somebody pulling on a horse's reins. And if a horse is pulling too far to the left and you want to correct it by bringing it to the right, you don't let go of the left rein and then pull on the right lane rein because if it pulls too far to the right, you can't control it anymore and bring it back over to center. So it's really about balancing the two. And when you let go of the lateral release rein and the lateral reins and perform a lateral release, you actually increase their ability to dislocate laterally. Um, so I think that's just an important topic to understand. When you when you get back to the uh, anatomy of the MPFL or the what we a lot of times refer to as the MPFC, so the wording gets kind of annoying or confusing here, but the medial patellofemoral complex is how it's uh, a lot of times referred to because it doesn't just attach to the patella on the extensor mechanism, it also attaches to the quad. And so you have about 50% of its insertion on the proximal half of the patella and about 50% or at least a centimeter usually of insertion is on the undersurface of the quad tendon. When you take that down and look at it where it attaches on the femur, uh, typically one of the nice landmarks is the saddle point between the adductor tubercle and the medial epicondyle. And it's usually just posterior to this. And so you can use anatomic landmarks to find it. And then you can also use radiographic landmarks um, at the time of surgery. Uh, but I think that helps you understand why there's some pediatric-based reconstructions that go around the adductor tendon uh, distally. So that's very close, but it would be just slightly proximal to the native insertion or attachment on the femur. And then there's MQTFL reconstructions, which is a quad tendon-based reconstruction instead of going into the patella, which preferentially reconstructs that proximal half versus the distal half. Hmm. I gotta, gotta look up and read up a, a little bit more on, on, on those uh, type of reconstructions. <laughs> <laughs> Can't lie. And, and even the, the, I liked how you, how you said that about the horse's reins that yeah, makes that so good. much sense, uh, which is something we probably talk about later, how most people say, don't ever do a, uh, lateral, you know, release by itself, uh, you know, alone thinking that's going to fix the problem. So, uh, I like how you, how you, brought that up that's pretty good oh and also i remember i was on my sports rotation that was probably my first rotation of uh, residency i think the first question i had asked was you know what what is the attachment on the femur for the mpfl and i got it wrong i, I say that <laughs> I, I, I tend to get oh, these man. things wrong at first but uh now now i want to know a little bit of time yeah it takes time yeah that's the socratic <laughs> but, uh, method you know you, you get there there we go. But uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you just mentioned that as well. Um, so heading off into imaging, uh, what is your usual, you know, the steps you take as far as what images you get and kind of why are you getting them? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, uh, you know, um, acutely, the imaging is really to look for that osteochondral uh, fracture if it's present. And usually that'll be up in the front of the notch, just the anterior to the tibial spine. And again, sometimes they'll be in the lateral gutter. So keep an eye out for a bony piece or chip in those areas. Uh, acutely, obviously, I just get an AP and lateral because of the patient's discomfort, and then we go to the MRI. Uh, but then once we can do a full workup, um, I do get a long leg alignment film to see if they're in any associated valgus uh, or if they have a leg length discrepancy. I then get uh, AP view, which really primarily helps you with actually femoral aniversion. 
So if you're seeing an oblique of the femur when they're standing with their legs straight, then that means that most likely they have some degree of femoral antiversion. That should be your first tip that that might be something this patient's dealing with. The merchant view is another view you can get to look at the patellofemoral joint itself. Uh, this is not a good view to look at trochlear dysplasia because usually the patient's in high enough flexion that it's an important thing to remember that when you have like a dome-like trochlea, that's at the entrance of the trochlea. Almost everybody, unless they have really severe disease, has a trochlea eventually. And so if you flex the knee far enough for these x-rays, you'll see a groove. Don't get fooled into thinking that that place, patient does not have dysplasia. I do think that this is helpful for looking at uh, patellar tilt and also looking at um, patellar dysplasia, uh, but not trochlear dysplasia on the merchant view. And then the lateral view is really probably the workhorse for patellar instability. And the definition of a perfect lateral view is, is to be honest, variable, but most people would agree that you need to line up the posterior condyles and then you either want to get the distal or proximal aspect of the posterior condyles lined up or somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and then that's where you can start to grade trochlear dysplasia and evaluate patellar height. There's different uh, measurements for patellar height. I use the Canton de Champ ratio or the CDI ratio. Um, that one's been shown to have probably the best interrelated reliability and also um, be the most consistent irregardless of uh, knee flexion uh, or skeletal maturity. And so that's the one that I, I tend to go for for that measurement. Um, then there's advanced imaging, um, which I do you have any questions about the plane images before I move on to that? Yeah, I, yeah, I know there are, um, there's like a, not a million and one, but there are a lot of different, uh, different ways to calculate that patella height. I'm trying to I'm trying to see which one is the is the best you know way sure. to help you you know with surgical planning versus with a diagnosis. Yeah, so um, you know that there's at least four ways that I can think of. So there's Insol Sabati, Blackburn Peel, Canton de Chang, and then using Blumensatz line. Uh, Blumensatz line I would say is probably one of the most one of the oldest ones and. Um, is really dependent on the knee flexion angle. So anything that is dependent on knee flexion angle is automatically going to be fairly flawed. Uh, some of the other ones are based on the osseous anatomy. So they are looking at the distal pole of the patella to the tibial tubercle and the proximal osseous component of the patella to the distal pole of the patella. And so as you start to look at these things, the patella can insert or your tibial tubercle could be relatively distal to the plateau, but that doesn't mean that the patella is sitting high. Maybe you just have a relatively distal tibial tubercle compared to the articular surface. Similarly, the osseous patellar height has almost no correlation with the articular uh, length of the patella or the articular height. And so some people have a large nose coming off of the patella and you really care about the articular overlap. And so we can talk about that also on the MRI where you can look on the sagittal views where you actually can measure the amount of articular overlap, which is functionally really what we all care about. And so the insult, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Canton de Champ ratio is nice because it's based on the articular surface of the patella and then the distance from that articular surface to the articular surface of the tibia. So I think functionally, uh, it also makes the most sense. Okay. 
And I guess go ahead and moving on and going into advanced imaging, such as CT scans versus MRIs. Uh, you know, what, when are we getting that and, and what are we looking at um, when we get these images? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that it depends on your institution, but typically most people would agree that a high quality MRI can supplant the need for a CT scan. Um, so anybody that I'm operating on, I'm going to order the MRI, uh, even if I didn't get it initially. I'll be very honest with you, it it's frequently does not change management of someone that has not had surgery before, because almost all patients uh, could probably benefit from an isolated NPFL reconstruction before they have something larger than that, uh, based on the current evidence. But you definitely want to be able to have a full conversation and tell the patient, you know, you have these two or three factors that are abnormal. Uh, we're aware of them. We're ignoring it because it would add a lot of risk and recovery to add this to your procedure. You know, we think we have a good chance of having improvement with this isolated procedure, but we know what can, can come next if we need to. So I think it's nice to, to round out that conversation. Um, so I, I do look at a few different things. When I get an MRI, I get uh, something we call a rotational profile where they get a scout view of the hip and the ankle. That'll let us measure femoral antiversion and tibial torsion in, in all patients. Uh, then I look at the uh, patellofemoral cartilage surface, which a lot of people would look at it on an axial, and, and that is very useful for the patella, but the trochlea, you can really get a good idea of the cartilage on the sagittal. And so typically I'll be looking at that uh, for that information. Uh, you can also get an idea of trochlear dysplasia when you're looking at the, axillary, or the axial view. And that's also where we measure the TTTG distance as well as the TT-PCL uh, distance uh, as well. Then uh, on the lateral views, you can also measure patellar height on MRI, uh, but I think that's a little bit more complicated and it takes uh, multiple sequences or planes uh, within the same sequence to do that. So I find it a little bit more difficult uh, than X-ray, but those are the main factors that I, I would look at on the uh, MRI. Okay, all right, that's good to know. And so now we, we've worked this patient up. We've did a history and physical, got a good exam. We have an idea. We sent for some imaging. Uh, we considered radiographs versus MRI, possibly CT. Uh, now, thinking of treatment, where do we go from here? Uh, ver and I, we can even start with non-operative treatment. Who gets that and uh, what does that consist of? Yeah. Um, you know, as surgeons usually do, we build a lot of evidence around our operative treatment algorithm. Uh, we have okay evidence for our non-operative treatment algorithm, but it's, it's not great. Um, the, anybody that comes in with a traumatic first-time dislocation that does not knock off a piece of cartilage or bone that needs to be fixed uh, should have a very good reason to go straight to surgery, if that makes sense. So, Another way of saying that is the standard first-time non-complicated uh, first-time dislocator usually is appropriately treated initially with non-operative management. Now, as, as we learn more and more, uh, that's getting challenged and, and we're getting a little bit more surgically aggressive, but I think it's, it's always a fair thing to say that non-operative is correct. Uh, if somebody knocks off a piece of bone that's big enough to fix, then those are the patients that you should probably go straight to surgery for. When you perform non-operative management, uh, one thing is very clear, we do not immobilize people anymore, so we wanna work on getting their motion immediately after uh, they've had their dislocation. And 
whether that's doing an aspiration to get their effusion down or just ice and an anti-inflammatory, starting some early physical therapy or an acute knee prehabilitation program. And then I do use a patellar stabilizing brace for six weeks. There is no evidence behind any patellar tape, uh, stabilizing brace or patellar taping in the first six weeks after. So that's an anecdotal recommendation. And then uh, it, it's an important point to have the conversation with the patient of, are, are you high risk or not of having this happen again? Uh, because that might push you if it's a it's an out of season uh, athlete that's playing a contact sport that has many other risk factors, then maybe there's a chance you take that person to surgery for that reason. But the redislocation rate is depending on the patient can range from 10% to 60%. So it's it's really very variable. Um, so that's what I would say for the non-operative treatment. Um, if you guys have any thoughts on that. Yeah. So do you, is there ever a, you know, is there a role for knee? One is for knee aspiration acutely to help with pain uh, from the hearing arthrosis. Do you typically do that in the clinic or do you, you just tell them ice it, elevate it, and then continue just with range of motion? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll base it on uh, how far out they are from their injury. So if they came in and they've acutely injured it and they have a huge effusion, um, I usually do offer them that aspiration. It's usually going to be a hemarthrosis at that point. It decreases the chance they're going to have a clot that they have to work through in there. Um, and a hemarthrosis is also toxic to the cartilage. You know, people that have uh, recurrent like hema, uh, hemophiliacs or sickle cell patients can have bleeding into the joint, and, and that actually causes early onset arthritis. So I think evacuating that's helpful all around. And I'm not particularly concerned about the infection risk there because that's very rare. If they happen to come in and it's already two weeks out and they say it's already coming down significantly, then I may just let that person ride. So I guess our next step is, you know, say we had this, this patient, they had their acute uh, episode, you know, you sent them to rehab for the first part. They got a little bit better, but now that they come back to clinic saying that their knee, they felt like their knee is dislocated twice out um, since the first time. You know, what are, what, are you, how, what are you thinking about for surgery and, and how do you go about what, what surgical procedure uh, that you're going to do for these patients? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that gets into what I think is the most important part of this uh, problem or, or how we approach this problem. And this is where you probably see the most differences in people's approach. And so I try to put together first just a clinical picture like you painted, which is, I think, a very clear uh, patient that has recurrent uh, episodic patellar instability that would need to be stabilized. So if we make that assumption that that's where this person's at, then we start to develop a rank order algorithm of all the different things that can put them at risk and specifically things that I can fix. And so we have modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. If their Baton score is high and their age is low, those are risk factors for redislocation, but they're not modifiable. So I like to focus on what we can actually address. And so the main measurements that I look at for that are the CDI that we talked about, the TTTG, the TTPCL, and their J sign, which is also correlated with their amount of dysplasia. I feel like through those measurements, we can pretty much get an idea of all the things that could exist for a patient. Everybody has different cutoffs for what's abnormal. Um, and what I like to say is that I have cutoffs for things that will draw my attention. And then once they're in that category, I look to see how many things are in that category and then 
pick and choose what I'm going to treat. And so for patella alta, if the CDI is not 1.2 or higher, I don't even care about it anymore. So I'll ignore that as normal. That doesn't mean I correct everybody that's above 1.2, because uh, actually I frequently do not, but it's on my radar. If their TTTG distance is greater than 17, then for me, that's on my radar. And if their TTPCL is greater than 20 to 25, uh, more likely, then that's on the radar. Uh, I look at valgus greater than seven degrees, femoral antiversion greater than about 20 to 25 degrees, and a J sign that is a jumping J sign. Uh, those are things that I would want to pay attention to. If they don't have any of those factors, then that patient's going to be best served with whatever version of an MPFL you feel comfortable with and you feel like you can accomplish successfully in the operating room. And if somebody is not otherwise high risk, then I don't think you need to add the other procedures on just because of one of those factors being abnormal. I may, I may have to go back and listen to that again to, 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 <laughs> to figure out exactly what you're saying. It's a little alphabet soup. <laughs> um, can you explain again what the CDI is and, and how, to, how to get that? Yeah, so that was that Canton to Shaw ratio that we were talking about with regards to patellar height. And so, you know, the higher that yeah. that is and the more patella alta they have, the longer your ligament has to work before the patella gets into the groove. And so we talk about distalizing the tibial tubercle when that's very high so that the MPFL doesn't have to have such a large working length um, associated with it. I see. I see. Okay. So when, when considering uh, fixing the MPFL, uh, can you explain uh, the difference between primary repair versus reconstruction and kind of what your thoughts are on, on doing those? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And um, I think you'll get different opinions depending on who you ask. Uh, again, I'll start with what I think is the easier answer. I think most of us would stay at this, say at this stage of the game, that if you have a recurrent episodic dislocator, that they're again best served with a formal MPFL reconstruction. Um, it's been shown in those patients that a, a medial reefing or repair, if you want to call it that, um, is likely to stretch out again and is not as predictable of a surgery. I think the situation where a repair and a reconstruction uh, are vying for attention at this point is the first time dislocator where you're forced into surgery because they knocked off a piece of cartilage and bone. And now you also feel like you wanna stabilize that patient. The reality is, is that the MPFL usually tears in multiple locations actually at the time of dislocation. So if you happen to have one that is a very clear tear off the patella or a very clear tear off of the femur, then you could do a repair at that time uh, but I feel like my MPFL reconstruction has become consistent enough that I'm comfortable in a first-time dislocator if I have to do surgery for other reasons uh, to do a formal MPFL reconstruction in that setting. So, you know, the, the things you don't want to do to patients are cause harm. And so the biggest source of harm in an MPFL reconstruction is if you drill eccentrically in the patella with tunnels and cause a patella fracture after surgery. Uh, or if you set the length wrong and put your tunnel in the wrong position on the femur and make them too tight, 
uh, those those are really difficult situations and hard to get somebody back to uh, a normal quality of life after that. Um, so that's why some people can have concerns, but I think that we're understanding a lot more about this now and avoiding those complications um, much more than we did in the past. Okay, and sound like some of the pearls that you mentioned on if you were are to do the reconstruction uh, is if you're too eccentric, possible patella fracture, uh, not having the tensioning correct of the actual uh, graft. And actually, you know what, that brings up another question. What, what is the normal, what graft do you usually like to use when you are doing a reconstruction for these? I, I use a semi-tendinosis allograft. Um, there's several studies now that show that autograft and allograft have the same outcomes, so I'd rather not have to harvest that from the patient. Um, the semi-T is, is a larger graft than the native MPFL by far, so it's, it's overkill. You could use something smaller, but, but that's what I prefer. And you know, the idea of, of setting length of the graft is very important because the the MPFL, sometimes we talk about isometry. So isometry is the change in length of a ligament throughout a range of motion. And when something is truly isometric, then it doesn't get longer or shorter as you move through range of motion. And people will talk about trying to find an isometric point for the MPFL. Uh, but the reality is, uh, this has been described before, it's, it has a favorable anisometry. And so the MPFL is not isometric. It starts out in its longest point in full extension. And as you flex the knee, the distance between the two attachments slowly shortens, which effectively lengthens uh, the graft that you put in, in extension. And so when you're checking this in surgery, you wanna make sure that as you bend the knee, your graft loosens with flexion. So if it tightens with flexion, then most likely your location on the femur is not correct and should be adjusted to, to avoid that. Okay. And I know you mentioned bone tunnels. Do you ever consider or do you ever use, um, I think they're called like interference screws or anything like that? Uh, uh, there, there are described techniques with interference screws on the patella. Um, I use an interference screw on the femur. I use an onlay technique in the patella. And I like that because I put the loop end of the graft on the patella between two small three millimeter suture anchors. And then you have your two free ends that you bring through your femoral tunnel. And you can't, if you think about it, when you tension a graft, you're pulling tight on a graft and then fixing it. With the MPFL, you should never be tensioning it. You should just be setting the length. So you put the patella in the correct position. And for some people, they fix it in flexion. I fix it in full extension. You pull those tendons into the femur. And then you just put the screw in in that position and you shouldn't be tightening it or pulling on that uh, ligament at all. When you have the two free ends going into the femur, if you think about it, the length changes from the most distal aspect of the medial patellofemoral complex is very different than the most proximal aspect. And so you see more isometry distally and more significant length changes proximally. And so to allow those two limbs to individually set length, let you get what's a more native uh, function and, and you're trying to restore that native anatomy. And this is something else I just thought about here as well. Do you usually use, uh, do a, use the scope before repairing these um, ligaments as well? 
I do, yeah, I routinely do that, mainly to survey the cartilage surfaces and just make sure I'm not missing out on some chondral damage from their prior dislocations. And if I know they have a piece that's loose, that's actually how I'll find the piece and remove it before we do an open repair, because sometimes they can be hard to fish out uh, once you open the joint. Yeah, I know there's a lot of different ways to uh, to to do this type of repair. And I like I have a couple of tendons at the same institution who 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 do who do them completely different so uh it's good to hear hear your uh, point of view on things uh do you ever do any kind of like imbrication or do you think there there play there's a role for imbrication of this type of uh injury um so so again i would never criticize someone for doing it it's just not part of my armamentarium um i i don't feel like i have the control um to figure out how tight to make that, how much should I imbricate it? You know, am I, is this a ligament that tore off the femur initially and now I'm tightening it up on the patellar side? You know, uh, what are the abilities of that to stretch out? Um, so I, I think that it gets back to what you were saying about you'll see a lot of different things from different surgeons. The, the most important thing you do not want somebody doing is something they're not comfortable with or something where they're uh, potentially causing that over constraint and over tightening somebody medially. Um, so you will see it. I think there's a lot of ways to get it right, especially when it comes to different forms of reconstructions. But I, I will say that I very rarely perform a medial imbrication or repair in my practice. When, uh, if you do do these, do, do you ever do, you know, trocheoplasties or femoral osteotomies uh, in conjunction with these cases? Yeah. Yep. So it's a, it's another good question. And, um, certainly in revision settings, I definitely consider it. And again, you, you don't want to, you can't correct everything that's wrong. So I had a patient recently who had, who had everything. She had patella alta, femoral antiversion, dysplasia, increased lateralized tibial tubercle based on her TTTG. Um, and so you got to kind of pick and choose your battles of which ones are the most significantly abnormal. I would say the, the one that is very nice and the patient tolerates very well is the tibial tubercle osteotomy. Uh, that's an extra articular osteotomy. I think the chance of stiffness is much lower. If you're doing a fulcrosin or an anterior medialization, that's a very powerful procedure uh, to change where the kneecap is trying to line up before it gets into the trochlea. So it kind of lines up the putt, so to speak. So if you imagine, if you take your leg and just let it straighten out all the way and relax your quad, you can easily shift your patella back and forth. But if you flex your quad as tight as you can and straighten your leg out and try to move your patella back and forth, it should have almost no translation at that point. And that just shows you how strong that quad vector is in guiding the patella and where it's going to go. And the only thing really determining where that is, is where the tibial tubercle is sitting. And so that, that is my most common procedure that I'll perform uh, outside of just the isolated MPFL is an anterior medialization and a possible distalization. Uh, so if somebody has a TTTG of like 25, 30, something like that, when it becomes that abnormal, I essentially need a good reason to not correct it. So that, that's when you get into more severely abnormal ranges. When it comes to trocleoplasties or uh, osteotomies, of the femur. Uh, I will do derotational osteotomies of the femur or distal femoral osteotomies for significant valgus. Uh, the distal femoral osteotomies I reserve for people that are true flexion dislocators. 
So the uh, when, when people dislocate inflection, a lot of times the lateral femoral condyle is hypoplastic, and so you need to lengthen that by actually performing that osteotomy and bringing that condyle forward, so it doesn't have that. Uh, so it does have the buttress it should have to keep it centralized. Um, the derotational femoral osteotomy is very helpful for patients with miserable malalignment, but you have to remember if you're going to fix that, usually you have to derotate their tibia also. And then finally, the trochleoplasty is something that has become much more popular. And there's two main types of trochleoplasties. There's an entrance trochleoplasty or a bumpectomy, where you're just smoothing out the transition point coming into the trochlea. And then there's a groove deepening trochleoplasty where you're actually removing bone behind that dome-shaped trochlea and then either plastically deforming it or cracking it and breaking it and creating that new groove. For me, if a patient doesn't have a supertrochlear spur greater than five millimeters or they don't have a jumping J sign where they're entering into the groove, then I don't really care how much dysplasia they have. If they don't have something in those two categories, I'm not going to touch it. Um, and I do feel like a lot of patients can benefit from an entrance trochleoplasty where you're just um, trimming down that proximal aspect that's proud to make a smoother transition as opposed to the formal groove deepening, which, which does have a harder recovery and slightly more risk associated with it. Nice. Uh, I think that was excellent. And uh, since you just mentioned recovery, we'll just take a quick second. Uh, it's just to talk about postoperatively, you know, do you have a, you have a protocol um, that is typically the same for if you do like MBFL reconstruction versus a, a TTO? Like, do you typically have them weight bears tolerated in a, in a knee, in a hinge knee brace or, and what's kind of your, uh, your, your post-op protocol? Yeah, I, I do use a hinge knee brace for everyone for six weeks, just in case they have quad inactivation and I don't want them to fall and fracture their kneecap or their tubercle if we fixed that. Um, I do allow full weight bearing and full range of motion as tolerated, uh, unless I did an osteotomy. If I do an osteotomy, then I do toe touch weight bearing, uh, but I still do full range of motion as tolerated, no restrictions starting post-op day one for all patellofemoral procedures, even if it's a TTO, uh, bipolar patellar OA graft and an MPFL, there's still going to be full motion. Um, after six weeks, everybody gets rid of the brace. Hopefully, they're close to full motion by the end of that six weeks. We start to work on some low-level strengthening and stability exercises for the second six weeks. Once you get to three to four months, um, as long as they didn't have a cartilage transplant, we'll start adding in uh, impact activities, getting back to hopefully full running and sprinting by four months, and then potentially cutting and pivoting at that time uh, with hopefully the longest-term recovery being about six months in return to full activity and I don't typically recommend a brace uh, postoperatively then long-term uh, or any formal restrictions. Okay, good. Uh, well, I think this was a, it was an excellent talk overall. I think we touched on a lot of the high points uh, about patellar instability, how to evaluate these patients, what to be looking on, what to look for on imaging as far as x-rays as well as MRIs and some of the uh, treatment principles, you know, as far as non-operative treatment as well as operative treatment and different options. So, Dr. Yankee, I, I think this is an excellent, um, an excellent talk, an excellent episode. I hope the listeners enjoyed this a, a bunch. And, you know, we always just want to say uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and, 
and talking about this topic. And if there's anything, any last words that you think the, uh, the listeners should, uh, should take home uh, about patellar instability? Yeah, well, um, yeah, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me on. I think that these podcasts and the, the podcasts that you guys have started here too are, are really helpful for trainees. And it's a form of media and education that didn't exist when I was in training. And I think I would have benefited from it a lot if I was on it. So I'm happy if I was listening to it as a trainee. So I'm happy to help it all. Um, I think the, the main thing for patellar instability is it's not always complicated. A lot of them are not complicated. But if you get used to that alphabet soup, you know, what the critical cutoffs are for the different measurements. And you start having that approach for every patient that you see, that once you see the complex patient, you'll have a better idea of how to approach that person than just saying, well, man, this is messed up, <laughs> you know, this not tracking normally, and it just looks weird. And um, it gives you that, that better frame of reference. So just try to try to look at everything every time, and then it'll start to become a lot easier. Yep. And, and talking about education, I wish I would have had this talk before I did that rotation back in the day. I probably, <laughs> probably would have got all my questions right. Um, but uh, Dr. Yankee, before we let you go, we always ask our guests, is there a way for our listeners to reach out to you, whether it's a, a social media tag or a website or an email? Is there anything like that that you have? Yeah, I'm okay with all of it. So my uh, website is www.yankeemd.com so y-n-k-e-m-d um, I uh, my email is adam.yankee at rushortho.com and then if you put my name in on Instagram uh, or Facebook you'll you'll find me on there all right perfect we'll be adding you on pretty soon to our, our Instagram as well. But uh, once again, just thank you for the amazing talk. I, I learned a lot. I hope the listeners learned a lot. I'm sure they will. Uh, thanks to all the listeners for listening out and we will see you guys back in it next week. Thank you again for listening in to the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. Hey guys, you guys have been doing great, but continue to follow us on Instagram at Nailed It Ortho. Uh, follow us on YouTube even now. Uh, we got that co cooking up for you at Nailed It Ortho on YouTube, Nailed It Ortho on Facebook. Uh, keep leaving comments, see, keep sending uh, emails, and just thank you guys for all that you're doing. And we'll see you guys back next week.